Welcome to the Millionaire Next Door podcast with Robert Curtis, CFP, accredited investment fiduciary from Signature Estate and Investment Advisors. In this podcast, we help successful wealth accumulators like you looking to transition to a work optional lifestyle by helping you build strategies for growing and maintaining your wealth. Robert draws from years of experience and fiduciary responsibility and interviews guest experts to help you build reliable strategies to grow and maintain your wealth. Now, on to the show. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Millionaire Next Door podcast. So glad you could be here listening to this. Really appreciate it. Trying to bring you really good content. And today, uh, we have a repeat guest, Joe Carey. He's a CFA certified financial analyst. He's a member of our firm and my team, sort of virtually. He heads alternative investments for our firm, Signature Estate and Investment Advisors. He was featured on episode 40 back on, uh, what was it, November 21st of 23. We then discussed 1031 exchanges. This is uh, a real estate transaction to avoid taxes. Today, we were going to go deeper into our alternative investment platform. This is These are investments that not everyone necessarily gets to see, often associated with very high net worth, some challenges that maybe typical retail investors don't see or understand. So we thought we'd dig down deep because that is a really important service and sort of a safer bridge, and we guide clients through that. So with that long-winded intro, Joe, welcome. Thanks for being back. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, alternatives has kind of you know been the focus of uh, really my professional career, and you know, spend a lot of time in the space. It's a fast and evolving asset class. The the wealth management channel has more recently been introduced, but it's not really a a new asset class. So happy to uh, talk to the opportunities in the space and kind of how we cover the space for a little bit of point of clarification i'd say you know most of my my time and attention is, is fe- uh, spent on what we call you know alternatives but really private assets so things like private equity private credit real estate and and hedge funds so uh, it's really an area that you know SEIA has been able to bro- broaden the client portfolio experience and super attractive and and we'll we'll get to all those points uh, throughout today's discussion Oh, that's terrific. So these are sometimes a little different than the public markets. I'm just going to let you launch into, you know, talk about what are alternatives? You know, how can they, how can they be used? How are we using yeah. them? Yeah, I think, well, let's even take a step back and kind of just define, mm-hmm. you know, what alternatives really are, because they may not be familiar, as you mentioned. What I like to do is kind of position it with something that is familiar and kind of unpack it from there. So I'm, Assuming most of the audience is familiar with equity and debt, you know, when they think of equity exposure, likely thinking stocks, when you're thinking debt, you're either thinking loans or bonds and such. Well, alternatives generally fit within those buckets. It's just an access point is, is really what's different and kind of there's other there's some other different characteristics. But from an exposure kind of thinking about ownership versus lending, you know, generally speaking, alternatives fit within those parameters. So it's not something that's way out in left field, way different than what investors have in their current portfolios. It's just kind of expanding the opportunity set to include more 
of that exposure. You know, some ways that they're kind of differentiated from the traditional asset classes, and this is generalized, so, you know, it's subject to certain investments, but oftentimes it's lower liquidity. You know, there it is generally a less regulated space, so it kind of requires a little more sophistication and, and review and things of that. Um, there's lower transparency kind of on the back of lower regulation. You know, they're not held to the same standards of transparency. Not to say that you can't get information, but partnerships and uh, with the right people is what matters there. Sometimes there's higher fees and then oftentimes lag valuations. You know, with these these nuances in mind, we think it's extremely important to work with people that are accustomed to the asset class. And really, it's an area that SCIA has been actively investing in. And actually has internal staff, as you mentioned, that are, you know, focus on this and really do the legwork, uh, just given, you know, there's, there's some more nuances that the familiarity levels generally lower for, for most clients. So we kind of leverage an internal team to help bridge that gap. And you know, I, I, th- I love that you, we have a whole team and you're a specialist in that space. And those sound like some downside you described possibly, but there's obviously an upside or a role within a portfolio for these things. So I didn't mean to cut you off there. Keep keep going along. They're just, they're more of things to be aware of in the asset class, but in I wouldn't, yeah, think of them as downsides, but just more or less characteristics. Yep. You know, the lack of liquidity is, is generally a good thing for most investors because behavioral finance is something that has become more and more popular in the last, you know, two decades. And Oftentimes, investors sell at the wrong times and and buy at the wrong times when they do so behaviorally. So by actually removing that liquidity component, Mm -hmm. what you often get is called an illiquidity premium. You're getting compensated to not have that liquidity, and you can't hurt yourself by selling in in inopportune times. So if you think of real estate in 2023, it had a tough year. There was interest rates had expanded extremely meaningfully pushing cap rates, which is a valuation metric for real estate, they had to expand valuations and real estate went down. However, if we look at real estate broadly, the fundamentals, which include rent, growth, vacancy, things like that, all remained resilient. Rates do fluctuate and that they will moderate over time. That's the expectation on the street and, and with our and internally within our shop. So valuations will come back and, you know, and if by not being a forced seller in those environments, illiquidity premium, you kind of can wade things out. And I think it's a, you know, an attractive feature. The, the note on transparency, I think definitely raised some eyebrows. So I want to speak mm-hmm. to that. Transparency is definitely getting a lot better in the alternative space, broadly speaking. While it's not as regulated, there are third party representatives for the space that are pushing uh, managers or, or sometimes called sponsors towards a more standardized reporting set. You know, there's generally frequency requirements, such as quarterly, things like that. And while there's more and more investors pushing for more information, you know, the level of information is generally has gotten better. And in my experience, I've been, you know, I've been satisfied, you know, you could generally see all the portfolio companies, you have very good insights into the strategy, you know, the teams, that compositions, things like that. As we think of partnerships in the alternative space, and it's something to note, like these are generally long duration assets. You know, it's a partnership that that's going to withstand some time. 
So you want to partner with really strong managers. And part of that trust building process that's required is through added transparency. If you weren't, if you are a manager out there that's kind of shady in what you do, like odds are you're not going to be raising a lot of capital because the standards have just increased and they're Mm -hmm. continuing to increase. So yeah, I just wanted to lay those out as kind of differing characteristics. But broadly speaking, the main point there is that while they're going to look and feel a lot like equity and debt, there's just some, you know, varying nuances to be aware of. But, you know, I think partnering with managers like ourselves that really spend a lot of time in the space and really peel back the layers of the onion to cover all of this is is really how you have desirable outcomes and investing in alternatives. Yeah. I I love that because you guys are specialists. We've got a whole team in that. There's others doing this. It's a whole industry. There's people like yourself who are trained to ferret that out and find the right ones and look through all these and understand their processes. And then the upside of the benefit is where you're sort of putting some guardrails, like you talked about, with that illiquidity. I'm thinking of a crazy analogy, but for some reason, just bowling popped into my head when you know when you were a kid, they put the little bumpers in there, right? And throw it into the alley. It's almost like we've done that in a way for adults, not completely, but they just don't zoom out at the absolute wrong time. So through a, a very disciplined, refined process that, you know, you spend a lot of time, you and your team and our team with. So keep going, maybe maybe launch into the different categories. Obviously, there's private equity, private credit, you know, private real estate, hedge funds. Just continue on, please. Well, I'm, you know, I think it might be helpful to kind of define the asset classes to yeah. an extent. So really private equity, it is equity ownership in non-publicly listed vehicles. So it could be oftentimes there's a manager that is, you know, buying companies on behalf and pooling interests or pooling capital from investors to kind of fund that acquisition. That's generally the structure of private equity through a limited partnership. So a sponsor would buy, for example, it could be like mom and pop mittens. They're going to do a 50% acquisition and the expectation is to grow the business over time. Generally, the hold period is going to, in private equity, it varies, but let's call it five to seven years. And and really the reason private equity has grown so much over the last, I would say, you know, a couple of decades is that companies on average are taking much longer to go public. You know, back in 19 and, you know, basically 2000s, there was close to 8,000 publicly listed companies. The yeah. time to launch from, you know, inception of a, a new idea to making it on the stock market was, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but let's, for conversations purposes, let's say it was five years. Well, now we're seeing companies stay private longer, wait five, 10, 15 years before they look for, for public finance. And one of the reasons for staying private longer is there's more flexibility, right? There's yeah. when you're a public stock company, your management's reporting quarterly, they have to set expectations, kind of held to that pretty religiously on a quarterly by quarterly basis. So making long-term plays can sometimes be difficult to get your investors on board with. Within private equity, because you're holding it for five to seven years, they may spend a lot, you know, spend some money up front and then build a plan that's kind of executed over, you know, a multi-year basis to kind of drive significant change at the underlying level. Some companies have, you know, public companies have gone private. There's some benefits, all those costs, all that, 
you know, keeping up with the SEC. I mean, some you think of a company like In and Out Burger. I mean, they are just wildly successful. They just want to say private, do their own thing, and not have not have the hassles of reporting every quarter and all the transparency. It's nothing wrong with that, you know. Things like that baked in there, just to give folks some sense of that. that that's a good segue too into another really important part here, right? Companies are staying private longer, but it's not to say they're they're not strong businesses or they're not even sizable businesses. I was looking into some statistics on this just to add some color for the audience. And there's a little bit dated of a study, but it was back in, I believe, end of 2022. There was 18,000 private companies with annual revenue over $100 million a year. You know, $100 million a year businesses are, are very large businesses, well-known businesses that many people use in their day-to-day lives and, you know, just might not think of. However, there's only 3,000 public stocks with that within that yeah. same bucket. And there's only 4,000 public stock, you know, just over 4,000 public stocks in total. So you're talking about capturing a much bigger set of opportunities on the private side. So really, it's been prolific. Uh, in the evolution of portfolio management to have this access to private equity. I want to switch gears a little bit to private credit. You know, that's another asset that's very gaining a lot of uh, interest and it is very attractive because it's, it's really just non-bank lending. So again, these are loans that are very similar to what a bank or, or what you would get on a tradable market, except they're non-investable through, through any exchanges. They do vary in characteristics pretty significantly, you know, for the most part. And I'm kind of say with a focus on corporate lending, it's it's more floating rate, right? So when we think about more volatile interest rate environments, usually you want to have, you know, a lower duration. You want to have less interest rate uh, exposure or interest rate risk. So when you have a floating rate, it's kind of, it, it's a moving needle that moves with how interest rate policy is, is changing. So there's more insulation to the, the effects of that. So, for example, a bond that was paying 3% five years ago, that same bond might be paying 8% now. The value of those 3% bonds is going to be lower, right? Because the mm-hmm. oper- you're not getting paid for that same level of risk. So these floating rate kind of takes that volatility out. You're actually going to get a, a moving coupon based on what's going on there. They're usually shorter in tenure, I should say. So the, it's not this long window, this 30-year period where a lot can change. Usually the, the length to maturity is much shorter. So there's more nimbleness there. Being a step out of the public markets too, there's a little bit more negotiation there, right? Like where some players might want to prefer private credit is because their lender might be able to help them with you know, contract procurement or something that also helps their business grow, right? So the, there's usually more of a value-add approach in the, the private credit space. And I, I, again, I've been kind of focusing, I guess, on, on corporate lending, which is often spoken about as direct lending. But really, private cre- credit covers a lot more, such as commercial real estate, specialty finance, and ABS, just to name a few. And you know, part of that growth has really been Banks have been retrenching from the lending market over the last 30 years for a handful of factors, including, you know, regulation, changing balance sheet expectations, all the while, while this demand has really continued to just grow exponentially, just given the increase in private equity and things like that. 
Just to let listeners know, too, we took a little deeper dive into that in episode 35 with Phil Hasbrook of Cliffwater. That's an example of one of those. So keep going. But that's something we highlighted on a little deeper level. Go listen yeah, to that podcast as well. Highly encourage that as, as Phil is very knowledgeable on the space for sure. One we can unpack is uh, private real estate. And I would say that's a little more straightforward than the other two. Just given most real estate, as everyone's familiar with, is actually not publicly owned, right? It's not available mm-hmm. through a REIT structure. But if you are familiar with REIT structures, the private side is often very similar. So they're usually they're non-traded REITs or they're directly investing in real estate through a similar fund structure. Really, the difference on that side is a handful more of these private REITs because Often what happens in the public space is there's a supply and demand, right? There's investors that are looking to buy and sell their shares in the REIT. It creates more price volatility that isn't necessarily truly reflective of the value of the real estate. And when you take that volatility out, you kind of get more stabilization in in valuations and in pricing. Obviously, there's a multitude of macro factors that go into valuations, but on a more the short-term basis, if you're looking like month over month, you're not going to see that same level of volatility. That's an extremely attractive asset class for investors as it can reduce the overall portfolio volatility by taking that that trading factor out of it. The last asset class we can unpack a little bit is hedge funds. I would say most investors have, have heard of hedge funds, but they really are in a simplified manner, which it's very hard to simplify hedge funds as there's a ton of different strategies out there. But usually they utilize complex trading strategies. They have deploy substantial leverage. You know, they might be high frequency trading. There could be a relative value commodities. You know, there's a handful of ways that they do what they do. Oftentimes they, I I would argue, are the, the least transparent because they are playing in public markets for the most part, trading exchange based products. And doing so with an angle or a strategy that is generally proprietary or to capture, you know, mispricing. So if they were like out telling everybody, you know, screaming from the rooftops what they were doing, you know, that opportunity would eventually go away. I would say the transparency aspect that we were discussing uh, earlier, I would say is most relevant to hedge funds. Some of the core strategies that you know we've seen and, and had had exposure with is global macro. So that's like trading more government type plays. It could be demographic driven for a country. It could be hard goods, things like that. There's event driven, so it could be usually that's around mergers, expected mergers, kind of a relative value there. So if you think I'm using fictitious examples at the moment, but you know, mom and pop mittens wants to is going to be acquired by a conglomerate that does more clothing. Usually, they would make a, a an offer price, which is you know would be binding on completion, but the market's going to trade based mm-hmm. on their perception of the likelihood of that happening. So hedge funds can that have a track record in the event driven space might take, you know, positions in one side or another of that outcome and kind of try and profit off of that. That's one. And then generally there's multi-strategies as well, which kind of pool a bunch of different vehicle or different strategies together uh, under one house and kind of move relative to opportunity sets. So those are just to name a few. 
That's great. And we, some of these may be suitable for someone or not suitable. We, we have discussions as we construct portfolios or make recommendations. We can walk folks through, educate, but there's a pretty defined process of how we'd even get to a universe of things to even consider. And then we would walk through different levels of detail. So that's a big part of our process. And Joe's team and the research team is really integral to, to find you know, choices that really merit consideration and do a, an enormous amount of due diligence on that all the time. So having, having covered some of the basic classes that are a little different than, say, the public markets, uh, a couple of key questions, you know, what do we like and utilize the most and how much of an allocation to alts might be recommended for someone typical, maybe a balanced investor or a growth and income investor? Yeah, so I think, you know, the the four categories we covered so far, private equity, private credit, real estate, hedge funds, we use those all pretty consistently across our firm. And the reason really is, you know, it's it's about expanding that opportunity set. We want to build more resilient portfolios. We want to provide clients with the best possible outcomes. And our belief is by having a more well-diversified portfolio, that's one way of trying to achieve that goal. So oftentimes the way we recommend alternatives is about a 10 to 20% allocation. Uh, of course, that is subject to suitability. As you mentioned, Robert, it's not always for everyone. And generally, again, this would be a long-term view. We would expect that that allocation, that 10 to 20% to be held for over five to seven years for really the outcomes to develop. Because again, as mentioned, these are, are more long duration. And I would say that we've kind of come to that, that conclusion of, or, or that recommendation for an allocation is really on, on a fair amount of research. This isn't, again, this isn't a new thing or a new asset class or a, a new universe. Institutions have been doing this for a very long time. And there's a lot of factors behind that. We, I, I can cover those briefly, but really over the last 20 years, 60-40, which is more you know traditional, very simplified way of looking at debt and equity, it really hasn't worked. Uh, you know, Stocks and bonds, the correlation matrix has kind of come together. You're not getting that same diversification benefit that you know most people are accustomed to. His interest rates were historically low. So there was, you know, really setting up for a strong growth economic environment. You know, and then again, the lack of yield. So when you have low interest rates, if you're investing yeah. in fixed income, you're not getting, you're not really getting a great return in doing so. So investors had, had to look at different ways and different opportunities that, you know, meet their obligations because institutions generally have a mass pool of beneficiaries really is one way to think about it. They've really been leading the charge in investing in these spaces and, and have a lot of capital that they've thrown at it over the years. I mean, they, it's not like, again, it's, these are trillion dollar opportunities. This We're not talking about a very small opportunity set. I mean, there's a lot of capital. There's a lot of managers and specialists in the space and it's just ever expanding. And, you know, there really are, there's a ton of different models and we're not saying 10 to 20 is perfect, but that's mm -hmm. just what we generally think is prudent. And, you know, one way that we go about it is kind of thinking of what do you want the outcome to be from your portfolio? So if we're looking at a blended approach, one might be pulling 50% of your funding from equity and 50% of the funding from debt, right? That's going to 
not necessarily change the overall makeup of the broader portfolio, but create a more balanced funding position. However, you can also tilt that, right? So if if your goal is to reduce equity beta of your overall portfolio, you could pull more from equities. If you're trying to reduce your interest rate risk, you can pull more from fixed income. It's kind of a client by client basis. And yeah, no, that's good. I mean, so much is changing. We had interest rates held down, you know, below where they should be for maybe 20 years. That's all changed now. And it's really changing so many dynamics. So, you know, we're ultimately looking for safer bridges and things that might be more lowly correlated with with stocks and bonds to give the kind of outcomes, you know, you talk about more stability and opportunities. And it all depends on people's time frame and their goals. So we we walk people through this process. We just want them to go in a very sensible way to do it. Keep going. Maybe you want to sort of transition to safer bridges, a little bit about your process, maybe cover some general whatever you want to cover, maybe minimums, restrictions. I don't want to get too detailed for folks listening. So Joe is one of those CFAs. These are deep research folks. So if it's a little bit over folks' heads, that's, that's okay. They're the ones who are going in and crunching all these numbers, but we'll, you know, we, we make it a part of our process to explain that and make sure people are comfortable and really have a a vetted process. And so we're giving you a little bit of a deep dive into that. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to continue on. The one thing I think we should just cover quickly before we get there is really that suitability and kind of what have alts looked like historically. Right. I've mentioned how most clients, you know, listeners out there may not be super familiar with the alternative landscape. And it might come as a surprise given we're talking about how long it's been around. And really yeah. the reason for that is because inst- you know institutions have been dominating the space, but oftentimes from the manager's perspective, to be investors with them required a lot of capital. You know, generally speaking, investment minimums uh, with the managers we work with could be anywhere between one to ten million dollars per investment. Right. So if you're thinking about rebuilding a diversified portfolio with 10 to 20 percent of alternatives across four or five managers, I mean, you have have to have hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, one of the benefits uh, more recently is really the managers are kind of starting to work more directly with firms like ourselves. And, and we have, we've spent a lot of time in the space building relationships and negotiating access, you know, at manageable amounts. I mean, some of our investments, you, you're getting into some of the in our view, highest quality exposures in the space, and you might be able to do so at a $10,000 minimum. When you have bite sizes mm-hmm. that are much lower, right. you can start introducing these allocations to a much broader range of people. Another thing that's important and part of suitability is oftentimes, regardless of the minimum though, there is generally accreditation requirements. So that's just something to consider on a case-by-case basis. Generally, they're in lockstep. If there's lower minimums, it's generally more accessible. There might be nuances that make it accessible. Maybe it's more diversified or it's generally just comes down to structure there. But that's just something to consider. Yeah, really the the proliferation of alts, generally speaking, is something that I would say SCIA has been very involved in since the opportunity has grown and, and continue to be you know, heavily interested in the space. I, I was just coming up with this thought that 
it is a complex space. It's nothing new. There's a lot. Most folks are really not familiar with it. So I kind of think of it like if you're an avid hiker or that kind of thing, if you're going to go summit something like like an Everest or an Epic Mountain, you probably want some type of a guide or shaman or, or person who could or team that could take you up there and get you back down safely because otherwise it's completely unfamiliar territory to to a lot of folks even a lot of the high net worth folks we see come in they just don't understand this space they can't find it through the wall street journal or inner internet they're just not going to get good it's just too complex it's kind of like going into surgery you're just not going to know what you're doing so that that's my little analogy i don't know if you that resonates with you but i think that's what we would add as a value of a team to go through that process and and get through it and do it properly a fantastic way to think about it because it, it is true right like if when you are in specialist fields you don't want you don't just go into it without a plan without structure and without any experience so really what we can provide for our clients is that that helping hand we can help you as you mentioned, safer bridges is one way to think about it. Now, I think we really covered quite a few of the benefits. You know that yeah. generally you're going to have the expectation is for higher returns from that illiquidity premium. You know the duration not being liquid and having some duration there. It's generally for supporting long-term success. You know the stabilization given the valuation frequencies generally is more infrequent, right? It's not priced daily and it's not subject to volatility mm-hmm. in the markets. There's more generally more stabilization there. So by introducing alternatives to your portfolio, oftentimes you can reduce the over, overall volatility and have a better sense of you know how that portfolio should perform over time. Sometimes that's called smoothing. Smoothing has been seen as both, you know, both positive and negative. So I don't want to just talk about all it's like the, the perfect thing in the world there there's concerns and i'm happy to always address those but smoothing is i would argue is generally a good thing from a reporting perspective stabilization in your portfolio is a good thing that's something that you want right if your portfolio is up 10 percent one day and down 15 the next yeah. day and you can might be sweating a little more when you're looking yes. at your statements so if you can add a little bit of stability there a little bit of diversification and, and really think it helps investors be more more invested really in what's out there in the equity and debt landscapes, but also really help themselves on really that, that reporting basis. But I do think, you know, one thing that you wanted me to cover and, I, and I'm happy to is really what we do, what my team does in the space. You know, my, as you mentioned, my, I myself am fully dedicated to our alternative re- our research effort. In doing that, it does require specialization, but it also requires a lot of time and a lot of digging because we're doing a lot of work on a long-term partnership. We're not going to make a decision today and then change it tomorrow. We're going to make sure that we're covering all the bases to make sure we would be happy with this. You know, Obviously, we're going to revisit over time and we do monitor and, and, and have frequent dialogue with managers. But again, the the forefront of the discussion is around long-term partnerships. And I'd say, you know, generally on average, I mean, per single investment, it can be over a hundred man hours of due diligence easily. I mean, we spend a lot of time in this space and it's very important in our opinion to do so because we're, again, these are, are the liquidity. So that's 
when we're talking about how they might be viewed as negatives. If you are invested in something for a really long time, there is some ways out in the alternative space. Sometimes there's a secondary market. Sometimes there's structurally structural provisions that allow for liquidity for investors. But you want to be with partners that you're aligned on, right? So we're really trying to spend tons and tons and tons of time to just confirm alignment and confirm conviction. Generally, when we do our searches, there's an overarching macro or strategic view in mind. I don't mean it's a timing play. It's not because, again, these are long duration. But we're thinking about where do we sit in the economy? What's attractive? What areas you think are going to develop over the next five, 10 years? So it's funny. Again, I'm, I'm fully focused on alternatives, but I get asked questions about like stocks, like what's going on in the stock market? I don't, not that I don't know how, but I don't spend my time thinking about what's happening mm. you know, next month or the next, right. next two months, right? I'm thinking about where are we going over the next five, 10 years and then where do, how can we put our capital at in that? Just for some added context for, for the listeners. And then- once we have that kind of view in mind, we have this thesis of like, okay, this might be attractive on a long-term basis. We do a bottoms-up analysis, which is really a manager-by-manager manager review where we're looking at things such as the investment strategy and their development around that, you know, the performance, you know, their track record over time. How's the fund structured? You know, what's the intended hold? What, how can we expect to see liquidity? Also, the team's extremely important. What's the investor protections? What kind of what kind of transparency is going to be be shared? You know, what's the risk management? We're peeling back a lot of layers of the onion to make sure that we're covered from a lot of bases and comfortable with with the risks of investing in alternatives. And in my opinion, and it is a comprehensive review. We use third party research. I mean, we're talking directly to managers. It's a very active approach to the space and a highly selective. It's not like if I looked at it, you know, 15 managers, every 15 is going to be approved. And this is the case for any anybody in the alternative space that's doing proper review is really, you know, having a defined process that you are screening businesses out because not everything is going to fit your your tolerances, right? Or the exposures one. I don't we didn't really discuss but because of some of the the lack of regulation, some of the some of those characteristics that kind of define the asset class, generally speaking, the dispersion within each one. So if you think about the the range of outcomes within private equity, within private credit, within real estate, et cetera, they're generally wider than they are on the public side. And it's because of all the things that we're trying to uncover and spend our time unpacking, generally, our belief is we can, through manager selection, have better outcomes. There are managers that might have over, be overly concentrated in, you know, they might have a, a five investment portfolio and 80% in one fund or one deal. You know, if that blows up, it's going to have a really bad outcome for investors. So we're really unpacking a lot of different variables and yeah, really just trying to know the manager, know the strategy through and through, because this, again, it's a long-term partnership. And in, in our belief, it takes a lot of work to get there. You know, that's that's just like our kind of our screening process, right? That's just like, how do you become part of our conversation? You have to go through all of that. So it, it really is, again, I think comprehensive. And I think that's the prudent way to do it in our in our view. 
But even then, if once we finally get some conviction around an opportunity, like it doesn't stop there. Then we we bring it to a multi-stage investment committee process. Like this is touching a lot of eyes and, and hands before there's any sort of use case, right? Because again, these are long-term, you know, getting out of them is not, sometimes can take a little bit of time, uh, just given that duration play. But we really want to make sure it's something that we as an organization are comfortable with and yeah, we spent a lot of time in, in that effort. That's fantastic. I, I really appreciate you spending some time uh, sort of letting us know under the surface part of that process. So we try and convey, I have a very detailed process, obviously been doing this north of 26 years now, but for anyone listening or any clients, you know, you're not at the mercy of maverick talent here. This is a whole team working together you know it's about the people the practice and the process so we just we're allocating more in this new dynamic we're having these discussions we welcome these we wanted folks to know some of what's behind the scenes that you may or may not know joe you did a fantastic job i'd like to say you're hired (laughs) with me and my crazy analogies made me think of the beatles when they were you know, at their height on some performance, they said, thank you on behalf of the band. I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> that's kind of how I, appreciate I it. jumped into my mind when I heard this. So for anybody listening there, there's a really detailed process and we're engaged with it, me and my team, and we try and share that with folks so they really understand what they're getting into. And to my shaman analogy they say when you're summiting these things like everest you know you want to have this team and they you may get to the top and they're like this is great well the team tells you you got 15 minutes up here to view it and then we need to get descending because most of the uh, injuries happen on the way down we want to get you back down safely you know you wouldn't yeah. know that on your own unless you you had those experienced folks so we try and guide them through that but this has been amazing all as we kind of land the plane here any other closing thoughts we'll we'll dig into some more of these as we go go forward and this is kind of an evergreen resources so folks if you're more interested you can re-listen to this and uh, that way you'll you'll understand a little bit more about alts from people who are like Joe or were specialists and very professional and spend hundreds and hundreds of hours digging into the space. But I'll, I'll let you uh, close out if you have anything. I think using your, your Everest analogy is fantastic as a group and as working with SCIA and kind of the processes we have in place. Like this isn't a lot of work goes in up front, but also a lot of work goes in during the life of the investment and during the harvesting and, and the liquidation, right? We, we are going to be your guides throughout the, the course of the events and we're going to be your resources, right? Because <laughs> you got to look to your guide when you're in specialist type situations for sure. So that's a great way to think of us. Like we will help you through the process. We're here to answer questions. You know, this is again, an unfamiliar space to many people and there, there are these nuances, but that's where we spend a lot of time and we have a lot of resources and, and materials that we can help share there. So really appreciate the time and, and having the opportunity to speak on alts. I'm sure you can hear it. I'm very passionate about the space. Really uh, appreciate the opportunity. Fantastic. We, we appreciate it too, Joe. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope everyone makes it a great day and week, and uh, we'll be back with additional 
opportunities and discussions going forward. So thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Millionaire Next Door podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Signature Estate and Investment Advisors. Signature Estate and Investment Advisors, LLC, SEIA, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. However, such registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training, and no inference to the contrary should be made. Securities offered through Signature Estate Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through SEIA LLC, 2121 Avenue of the Stars, Suite 1600, Los Angeles, California, 90067. Telephone number 310-712-2323.